welcome to the Inner Source Healing Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you heal from toxic abuse. My name is Deborah Ashway, and I'm a licensed clinical mental health therapist and a licensed clinical addiction specialist. But more than that, I'm someone who's been where you are now and has experienced the devastating effects of toxic abuse. It's been a long journey through the path of healing, but I'm here to share with you the insights and the tools that I've gathered along the way. In this podcast, we'll explore the common symptoms that result from experiences with toxic abuse, such as depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, feeling trapped, all the negative cognitions that come along with it. And we'll also dive into the various techniques that are used by these individuals with toxic and manipulative behaviors so that we can identify them. And most importantly, I'll provide valuable techniques and practices to aid in the healing process. The healing journey brings us through these long-standing false perceptions that hold us back from experiencing a more fulfilling and meaningful life. It's about healing from dependency, codependency, trauma bonding, and abuse. Join me as we explore the path to inner healing and empowerment. This podcast, we're going to look at the predictable stages of toxic relationships. They seem to all follow a very similar pattern. And in fact, the dynamics are pretty much a classic example of power and control, such as other entities like cults. Um, so we're going to look into that a little bit because they, they do have the same patterns. They have the same tactics and they follow the same stages. People don't just willingly join cults, just like people don't just go, oh, I want to be in a toxic relationship. In a cult, they're recruited. They become part of a cult through a very systematic, psychological, and strategic social influence processes. Cults and manipulative individuals both enjoy deception. They enjoy undue influence to create a sense of dependency and obedience. This is what they're after. They want, remember, they want the power, the control, the attention, and the admiration. So it's essential to recognize the difference between acceptable and unacceptable forms of influence not all influence is inherently negative. Um, so we are going to look at cults because the usually at the head of a cult anyways, there is some form of narcissism or sociopath. But the term cult sort of conjures up these vivid images in our mind that range anywhere from like this charismatic leader um, to like a secret ritual and sometimes very tragic tales of individuals who have fallen under the spell of the cult or of the leader. And this is what happens in a toxic relationship. The individual falls under the spell of the controller, whether it's a narcissist or a psychopath or sociopath. The cult phenomenon has been studied and there's definite stages that are across the board with all cults. It's like they take this course on how to mind control and psychologically abuse people to bring them under their control, under their um, power. So these 
studying these, it's, it helps our understanding of individuals that are drawn into such extreme beliefs. Because when we look at the people that have get, gotten into cults, it's like, how could you, we think this, I would never do that. I would never fall for that. And the same thing when people um, learn about toxic relationships, or maybe one of their friends has ended up in a toxic relationship. And you hear it all the time, like, well, I would never do that. That would never happen to me. So we're going to look at it a little bit closer. Let's look at first what defines a cult. What drives people to join these groups? Surrendering their autonomy and and just embarking upon this path of unquestioning devotion. They become it's almost like they're zombies. So we're going to find we're going to look into the psychology behind this allure and see what sets cults apart from other mainstream religions. A cult is a group or movement with a shared commitment to a unusually extreme ideology that is usually embodied in a very charismatic leader. This is a definition by Janjalalik. So the psychology behind a cult, the experts who have studied cults suggest that the human need for comfort prompts people to actually seek out others or things to soothe their fears and anxieties. And this research suggests that those elements and others have led, I mean, just thousands of people to commit all kinds of just different heinous acts. We've heard of it before. Thousands of cults have operated around the world. And what they do, what a cult does fundamentally is they try to provide a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging. They try to offer a very clear, concise vision, and they assert the superiority of the group. The leaders themselves, they're typically, they're typically along the dark triad, but they present themselves as infallible, as confident, and as grandiose. Sometimes they're very charismatic, and their charisma draws people in, and follower, followers who are craving peace um, and belonging and security, they gain this sense um, of those things as well as confidence through the participation in the group. They feel like they're part of the group. They feel like they belong. So what makes a cult successful? Because remember, we're paralleling this with a toxic relationship because they both follow the same path. The In a cult, the indoctrination process can be a key to the cult's success and leave a very powerful impression on its victims. So each cult is a little bit different, but the methods are very similar and they resemble a very similar playbook um, of the psychological principles. It's cognitive dissonance and obedience. And cognitive dissonance is where we have like two conflicting ideas in our head. Like one is the reality of the situation. And then the other one is what our programming is telling us or what we're operating by or what we believe, what our belief system is. And the other one is obedience. They want blind obedience, just like a narcissist, just like a toxic relationship. They want to create that sense of dependency. So the cognitive dissonance this is a theory that was introduced back in the 50s, and that's when um, 
people are confronted with the facts that contradict their beliefs or their values and their ideas. And they will feel a lot of psychological discomfort. And they're usually, um, there's a need to resolve this, you know, this contradiction and reduce their uneasiness. So in a cult setting, the cognitive dissonance keeps them trapped because each compromise makes it more painful to admit that you've been deceived. So it uses both the formal and the informal systems of influence to control and keep members obedient with very little tolerance for internal disagreement and external scrutiny. So you're kind of fighting a little tug of war there is you're going to either be fighting in your internal system is going to be fighting itself because of that cognitive dissonance, or there's going to be the scrutiny that comes from the group. This is very similar in a toxic relationship because there's still that cognitive dissonance because you've been conditioned and programmed because of the positive and negative consequences. And so you know that the negative consequences that might be imposed by whatever tactic the, um, the abusive partner uses, whether it's threats or anger or acting like the victim or blame shifting, those are likely to be worse than the internal conflicts which is going against your own values, your deeper beliefs. So in order to avoid some of the external consequences, um, people will, that's how they get programmed. They'll fall in line with that. And then the obedience factor, that's another key element. This is where the victims are trained, just as in an abusive relationship, as in a cult. They must feel utterly dependent on the leader or on the cult, just like in a relation, in a toxic relationship, they feel, they end up feeling, or you end up feeling utterly dependent on whoever the abuser is. This plays off a, the human's natural inclination to follow orders and do what others around them are doing because the whole group is doing it. And in the toxic relationship, it is easy to just kind of go along. It's easier to go along with whatever they're saying or whatever their beliefs are rather than, um, to suffer the consequences. And in cult settings, critical thinking is frowned upon, just like in a relationship, different in different methods, but it's the same goal. So in a cult, absolute faith is rewarded. In a toxic relationship, absolute obedience and following there and going along in agreement with whatever they want is rewarded. Guilt, shame, fear, they're all used to slowly deteriorate your own ideology, inner wisdom, um, intuition, all of that stuff. So there's a lot in, of what I call fog, which is fear, obligation, and guilt. And if you go against that, you do feel the shame. They want to strip away individual identity. They want to get rid of your own sense of self. So free thinking and free will and free speech are limited in these environments where complete compliance is required. And cult leaders in turn have a very narcissistic and authoritarian um, tendencies and streaks, if not full-blown narcissists, and they're motivated by ego. And this is exactly in a toxic relationship too. They're motivated by ego. 
which desires one or more of the following. They either want sex, money, power, control, admiration, or attention, or combination, or all of the above. And they will stop at nothing to get it because they're driven by ego. Ego serves self. Remember, ego is self-serving. So let's look at the stages. They're very predictable. They're very specific strategies that these manipulators use to gain power and control. And they're predictable and similar to the cycle in both cults and toxic relationships. So number one, the recruitment stage. We're just going to call it the recruitment stage. That's where they pull you in. They pick their target. As it turns out, most people can be susceptible to cult influence under the right conditions. And there's a lot of research that shows that the people who are the most susceptible to the recruitment are stressed or they're coming out of another bad situation. They're somehow they're emotionally vulnerable. Um, they have very limited like family connections. They might be living in adverse conditions, whether that's socioeconomic or an emotionally abusive situation. So a lot of times in cults, new college students are the prime example of good targets for cult recruitment because they're still forming their identity and they've been recently separated from their families. In addition to that, people who are neglected or abused as children might easily be recruited because they, they're already craving this validation that was denied them in, in childhood. The next thing they have to do is persuade them to the trap. That means that they have to invite them to something. And it's usually a seemingly innocent invite to join them in order to have like a face-to-face -face contact. They want to bring them face-to-face. -face. So it could be a cup of coffee. It could be a class to try out, um, an offer to help with something. This is similar to the love bombing stage in relationships. And this is um, more or less self-explanatory because love bomb you. They want to make you feel special. So having, um, if they've identified a stressed or emotionally vulnerable target, they will flood that person with affection, flattery, validation, anything to build them up and make them feel like they want more of this. This, this is something so good. It's not a lot different than, you know, how people get hooked on opioids or drugs or other things. It's, it releases a lot of the same chemicals at oxytocin and it's a feel good. And so people get hooked on this. Um, so a recruiter that approaches the student, they do everything they can to make that student feel special and unique. They're, they're quickly trying to convey the message that I am your new best friend. I am the one that you can count on. And they will fake mutual interests. This goes the same in toxic relationships. They'll fake mutual interests. They'll do what's called mirroring, well, where they kind of mirror you in order to give the impression that you that they share so many things in common. They, they want to try to foster this connection, this real connection. The next thing is the pitch. The recruit must see smiling, friendly, happy people. Like It's like a living advertisement. So they feel more inclined to come along and join them. So they, the recruiters will invite them to come along again and again until they're part of the family. 
And then if you're in a toxic relationship, you're going to see how great their life is, all the things that they have to offer, everything that they can do for you, anything that they can help you with, anything that they can give you. You might be, you know, treated with a bunch of gifts, showered with affection, compliments, whatever it takes. So all of that is part of the recruitment stage. That's stage one. The next stage is the isolation stage. Once they've enticed a recruit with the approval or the promise of some fulfilling understanding of the universe or something that, you know, they can give them a lot of hope with, just like in a relationship, the promise of the future of this wonderful life, then they work to isolate the recruit or the target. And this takes the form in a, in a cult of something along the lines of like a weekend retreat. And this is where they're immersed in the cult's ideology over the course of a few days. And not only are the recruits physically isolated from friends and family members who might otherwise provide a reality check, but the cults often isolate recruits from outside information, including all kinds of things, news, TV, computer, web access, they're all censored so that the only reality that the recruit gets to experience is the one that's presented by the cult. They persuade um, the recruit to renounce their family and their friends and anyone who offers a reality check. The more isolated a person is, the more likely they are to invest in a new belief system, which this is the same thing that happens in toxic relationships. They, the partner, the toxic partner or the manipulator might start to, um, bad mouth your friends and family or tell, make subtle comments about how much they don't care about you or point out anything that they can to exaggerate a reality. For example, if somebody didn't text you back right away, one of your friends say, then the manipulator might turn that into, see, they don't really care about you. They don't text you. They only text you when they feel like it. And just really twist it around and twist your reality so that you start to think that maybe they're not such great friends. Maybe your family isn't there to support you. This, And then they might even do more like physically moving you away from friends and family or moving into an isolated neighborhood or a distance you know, anything to put that distance between you and the outside world. They don't want you to have a reality check. They want to be your reality. They want to alter your reality. So the next stage is stage three. That's the unveiling. I'm going to call it the unveiling. This is where the mask starts to come off. And in a cult, um, it I guess they reduce the autonomy to induce the dependency. Members might be deprived of sleep or food or giving or be given an exhausting task to tire them out, to drain them of all their energy, anything to keep them away from their usual support networks. There's very rigid rules and rituals that are introduced here. And at the same time, there are rewards that are offered. So with all of this, there's small doses of rest, small doses of comfort. It's like the carrot at the end of the stick. This is how they control them. Some groups use meditation, mind numbing, chanting, euphoric music, dancing. I mean, there's all different kinds of tactics in a toxic relationship. It's never a hundred percent bad. Never. They couldn't keep their targets trapped in these relationships if it was 100% bad. So they use what's what we call breadcrumbs 
and you know, or little, sometimes I call it like dog bones or something like they'll throw you a bone every now and then. So it's horrible. It's bad. It's controlling, but every now and then they'll do something that will try to make you feel special or they'll offer relief in some form or another. And then that relief in your mind is over-exaggerated because it's been deprived. And now here you get a small dose of it. So with all the deprivation, it feels like a big dose of something. And they, and we live off of this. In toxic relationships, this is what keeps it going. Not only that, but it also helps to break down a person's sense of self. Like in one cult, I think they were offering one meal a day, allowing two hours of sleep a night. And so all of this sleep and food deprivation, coupled with these rigid rules, this really breaks down a person's sense of self. They start to lose touch with reality and who they even are because they're now focused on, you know, more fundamental things for survival. Mind control is sort of like magic. Like anyone is in danger of falling into that trap. And it, and when you're deprived of so much and then you finally get it, you need, you feel like you need more and more of that. So this is, that's all part of the unveiling. You start to see the the mask come off. You start to see these people for who they are. They don't look as pleasant as they used to, but they can they can maintain the appearance every now and then through these sort of tactics. The next one is keeping control. They have to keep and maintain control. In a cult, this is usually when they start to introduce the belief system. They attempt to alter their reality or disconnect the recruit from their own reality. I mean, they've been working on it up until now, but this is kind of really where it breaks down. So after convincing the recruit that they're best friends, the best friends you've ever had, and after bombarding you with the ideology, this the job the next job is to make sure that they can keep you they can hang on to you so there's a variety of techniques that they use to accomplish this but it usually involves subjecting the recruit intermittently to both terror and love then the next stage is instilling a deep sense of fear when we're frightened we don't run away from the fear necessarily, but we run to a safe haven to someone. And that someone is usually a person to whom we feel attached. This is why they try to form this attachment early on. But when that supposed safe haven is also the source of fear, then running to that person is a, it's a failing strategy because it causes the frightened person to freeze they feel trapped between approach and avoidance. So they go into that fight, flight, or freeze, and then they feel trapped. So if you're feeling trapped, this is why. You're going into the fight, flight, or freeze. It's a natural human response because you're now trained to turn to the person that you fear for support. And by keeping cult members totally off balance in this way, this is how the cult increases increases their members' dependency on the on the leader. This is how abusers maintain um, dominance or maintain the dependency factor from their victims or from their partners. The exhausting, frozen state of terror and avoidance, fight, flight, or freeze. It's draining. It overwhelms people, and it limits their ability to think. 
So now they have a decreased ability to reason through things or think critically about anything. So now they're tuning into the programming more and more and turning away from their own sense of self or their own inner wisdom. Now they're operating on the ideology that was introduced to them, the rules. They're now committed to that. And breaking out of the situation almost always requires some kind of ally or another cult member who has become fed up with the system. They have to have support from this or maybe an outside influence. Uh, it's a very, it's difficult. This is once you're in this deep, it's really hard to break the bonds. So cults ret retain control over their members by controlling this narrative. They instill this deep understanding of a zero tolerance of criticism through punishment or through manipulative tactics, like they shame anybody who asks questions or they shun anybody who leaves and they make this known. They either do it subtly or they do it overtly, but they continue to control and they maintain the control through this understanding in their subjects or in their target or in, in the recruits. They Recruits understand that if, that if they were to ask questions, there's going to be some negative consequences. They're going to be outcast. They're going to be rejected. The same way as somebody who's in a toxic relationship understands not to ask questions. They just stop asking them. They don't even think of the questions anymore. Those questions don't even come to their mind anymore. The final predictable stage is the discard. This is when people break out of the cults, or this is when the cults um, get rid of the, re the recruits. They shun them. They reject them. And this goes the same for any toxic relationship. Either they threaten to leave or they actually leave because they, they're, they're done. They need more supply. Or they need additional supply. It's, it, there's nothing, it's nothing to do with the people being good enough or bad enough. It's got nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with not being compliant enough, not being controllable. So the discard stage is the final stage, usually, before it cycles back around to the stage, the first stage, which is the love bombing or the recruiting stage. But anyone that's, that gets a glimpse of reality, that has a, a moment of reconnection with their higher self or their wiser self that wants to leave the cult, that starts to question things, it's going to be really hard to do. There, this usually requires some kind of external influence. And that's really hard to get when you're being isolated. That's the reason for the isolation. Because the cults maintain control by using their narrative, by instilling the fear, and by enforcing this absolute obedience. So to leave is a challenge. Also, as in a toxic relationship, leaving a toxic relationship can be very dangerous. If they're physically abusive, this is the most dangerous and you want to take all precautions. Even if they're not and they're only emotionally or psychologically abusive, this is still problematic because they're still going to find ways to punish you. And if you're in this, you know this. You don't know how or what they're going to do. It could involve shaming. It could involve gathering up their flying monkeys, spreading rumors about you, trying to ruin your credibility, ruin your reputation, trying to keep you isolated. It could involve if you have kids 
um, using the kids. And that's the last thing somebody wants to do is let their kids become pawns in a situation like this. It could involve legal matters, but usually and almost always there's punishment when leaving or trying to leave a toxic relationship, whether it's whether it's um, an institution or a cult or a relationship. The discard phase of a bond within a cult is complex and it's very distressing. It's a very distressing experience for any individual involved. Cults are known for employing manipulative tactics to control and exploit their members, and the discard phase is a critical aspect of this process. We know that there's been isolation and dependency. The cults have created this environment where members become isolated from their external supports, family, friends, and the isolation is coupled with the cultivation of dependency on the cult for emotion, for emotional, psychological, and sometimes even financial needs. Same with toxic relationships. There's been a lot of control tactics. Um, so during the discard phase, the cult might intensify the control tactics. They might amp it up and almost guarantee they will to maintain dominance over its members. This can involve emotional man- manipulation, gaslighting, threats that are designed to keep individuals in a state of fear and subservience. There's been devaluation. Um, Cult leaders have devalued and degraded the individuals who have expressed a difference of opinion or any independence or show any signs of breaking away. And this devaluation serves to break down the individual's self-esteem, remove them from their self, and reinforce their dependence on the cult for validation. There's been expulsion, shunning, shaming, and in extreme cases, the cult decides to expel a member from the group. And this expulsion is accompanied by more shunning where former members are ostracized and cut off from any remaining connections with the cult. And this is a signal to the remaining cult members to not do this. This is a clear example to them of what's going to happen if you try the same thing. This can be an emotionally devastating experience because the individuals not only lose their sense of self to begin with, now they've lost their sense of belonging and also their entire social network. And they've been isolated from their former social network, so they feel ultimately alone. They feel completely discarded. There's the psychological impact And this discard phase, this phase right here can lead to severe psychological consequences. There's going to be anxiety, depression, PTSD. The abrupt severance of ties with the cult can leave individuals with a sense of loss, confusion, and a distorted sense of identity. I mean, that's an understatement because they've almost completely been detached from their own identity. They have to rebuild that. There's a lot of recovering and healing. Recovering from this um, this phase of, of a manipulative cult relationship is challenging. Same as the discard phase of any toxic relationship. It involves rebuilding your life outside the cult, reconnecting with estranged family and friends, seeking professional help to address the psychological trauma that's been inflicted during the cult experience. So it's really important. Support systems are essential. Establishing a strong support system is 
crucial for anyone leaving any kind of manipulative or toxic relationship. And this includes therapy, support groups, rebuilding those connections, anybody who can provide emotional support. Even animals have the ability to do that. Breaking out of toxic relationships, that's a little bit different, but very similar. The discard phase of a manipulative relationship is also profoundly challenging and emotionally draining. Same or similar healing process, whether it's toxic romantic relationship, friendship, any form of manipulation, the process of severing these ties can be pretty complex. So navigating this phase, there's key elements, including trusting yourself, trust, bring that trust back to you, practicing self-compassion, allowing these natural emotions to complete their cycle. You're going to feel similar to the phases of grief. You're going to feel anger. You're going to feel confusion. You're going to feel denial. You're going to feel all of the things, but allow space for that. That is crucial for, for healing and moving forward. You want to make sure that you trust yourself because these manipulative relationships have eroded your sense of self and your intuition. So during this phase, it's really important to reconnect with your instincts. And in other podcasts, we've gone over some of the techniques that can be used involving your sensory system and meditation, all kinds of things. But this involves acknowledging the validity of your own feelings, your own perceptions, and your own concerns. Trust yourself. Recognize when boundaries have been violated. And have the courage to take the steps to protect your well-being. Do that with self-compassion. Because these relationships can leave you with a very diminished sense of self-worth and a very heightened sense of self-blame. So practicing self-compassion is very important. That's another vital aspect of healing. Instead of berating yourself for ever being in the relationship or questioning how could you have been in this relationship, treat yourself with kindness and understanding. Understand that manipulation often preys on vulnerabilities, but they also prey on those that they deem valuable. It's okay to have been deceived. It's not your fault. It's not because you were stupid. None of that. And also allow these emotions because the end of a manipulative relationship can trigger grief, anger, sadness, relief. Allow these emotions to surface and acknowledge their presence. This is important. It's common to want to suppress or ignore these painful feelings, but that isn't going to help you heal. Allowing them to emerge and be processed is an essential step in the recovery process. You got to feel it to heal it. And setting boundaries as you navigate this discard phase, establishing clear boundaries is key. This doesn't just include physical boundaries, but also emotional and psychological boundaries. You have to communicate assertively and firmly. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be aggressive. You don't even have to be loud. In fact, sometimes you don't even have to say anything. Your actions will do the talking, but you want to be assertive and firm, expressing. If you do express, express your needs and make it clear that you're no longer willing to engage in manipulative dynamics, you can make that clear by not engaging in manipulative dynamics. Setting boundaries is a form of self-care and protection. There's, there's a lot of information on this. There's another podcast um, that I've done on this. See, and, and just know that seeking support and reaching out, it's important. Do that. 
find a supportive network, whether it's a forum or a group or friends and family that you trust or professionals who are trained in manipulative and toxic relationships or cluster B personality disorders, seek those out. They can provide understanding and guidance. They can help normalize some of your feelings and validate what you're going through. Sharing your experiences with others can be very validating and it helps the healing process. Professional therapy and counseling can offer additional support in navigating these situations. But again, you want to find some people that are well-trained in this. Rebuild your self-identity. This is kind of hard to do because you've been removed from that. Manipulative relationships involve a distortion of your self-identity. There's gaslighting. There's just all kinds of things. So take some time to rediscover and redefine who you are who you are outside of the manipulative dynamics, outside of the relationship. Engage in activities that bring you joy. Find interests. Reconnect with those aspects of yourself that might have been suppressed. And learn from the experience. This can, this discard phase, as bad as it is, it can be just as good as an opportunity for growth and self-discovery. You're not going to get that without pain. It's like another one. you got to feel the pain to gain, but it's true. You really do. You let yourself go through this pain and there's going to be that much growth and evolution in your emotional and spiritual self, your emotional and spiritual development. Reflect on those lessons that you learned from these, from this manipulative relationship and use them to empower yourself moving forward. And you can even help others but understand the red flags and these patterns. These can serve to be a very valuable tool, very actually a very valuable toolkit for building healthier connections in the future. So in essence, the whole experience of this is a process of reclaiming your autonomy, rebuilding your self-esteem, and embracing a future that is free from manipulation, that is gonna be so much better in comparison Trust yourself, practice the self-compassion, and allow these, these um, natural emotions to unfold. And in this journey towards healing and personal growth, you're going to find such joy that you've never known before. Thank you for listening to the Inner Source Healing Podcast. It's important to give yourself the self-compassion that you deserve and remember that your feelings matter. If you want more information or you want to contact me, visit my website at www.innersourcetherapy.com. That's www.innersourcetherapy.com.